<clears throat> taking their seat. Just a review of pertinent announcements. Vacation Bible School is next week, so that is the reason for the decorations. It'll be fun on Sunday. I am uh, just just to remember this for those who like to decorate everything early. There were at least two possibilities this week. We'd be having a memorial service here Saturday, which would have had a serious impact on the decorations. Just one can prepare too early. Just a word to the wise on things of that nature. That just occurred to me. Uh, Two of the announcements relate to those who've gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Richard Yeamans went to be with the Lord uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, There will not be a service, and uh, you can be in prayer for his family, for Kathy Yeamans, as well as for his daughter, Becky. Also, uh, Sandra Dietrich uh, went to be with the Lord probably yesterday, I think, from the emails I saw. Uh, She had had an embolism. I talked with her husband today. Bill and Sandy have been coming to the church. There have been about three couples who have been coming to the church who came over from First Baptist Katie about two months ago. And uh, Bill and Sandy sometimes sat in the back, sometimes sat up here. And you may or may not remember them uh, because they haven't come for very, very long. But they, uh, uh, this was quite a, quite a, there was no indication that, uh, that anything of this nature uh, would happen. The Lord is going to call us home when it's his time. And it, uh, like I tell people who want to go to Israel, if the Lord wants you to go, come to be with him on December 27th of, two, uh, of 2016, whether you go to Israel with us or stay here, it won't matter. You know, there's always a few people who think, oh, it's so dangerous. Now, a terrible thing happened yesterday with a couple of gunmen who open fire in a um, cafeteria or a cafe area, very popular market area in Tel Aviv. And four people were tragically uh, killed as a result of this act of terrorism. And anything like that can happen anywhere in the country. You can't avoid it by staying home because if you <clears throat> are going to be taken home to be with the Lord in his timing, then it will be one thing or another. Uh, but when our time is up, the Lord's calling us home, and we can relax because the time, the manner, and the place of our death is already determined. The only issue for us is how well we're going to live and how healthy we are, and I always like to add how much of it will, how much of the last 10 years we'll remember. <laughs> That's my sarcastic sense of humor. So... Be in prayer for Vacation Bible School next week. It begins Monday morning, goes Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning from 9 a.m. until noon. And then also be in prayer for uh, Camp Arete and for the staff. Pray for those who will be coming. Pray for their safety and travel and everyone's preparation for their uh, for the time of uh, biblical study there. The speaker this year, I believe, is uh, uh, Dr. Andy Woods, who's the pastor of Sugarland Bible Church. So that should be a, a great great time for them. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my path 
and a, a light. It's a light into my path and a lamp into my feet. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and most of those verses I just quoted are relevant to what we're going to be studying in the next week or two in First Peter, and we may or may not get into those tonight. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that we can come together this evening. We are especially in prayer for these two families, for the Yemens and Dietrichs. We pray for your comfort. We're thankful that those who were taken uh, to be with you are confident. We are confident in their salvation. They have clearly trusted in you for their salvation, trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And Father, we know that you will comfort the families and that they will uh, be able to have a clear and vocal testimony related to uh, the death of their loved one. Father, we pray for us that we might recognize that at any day uh, you may call us home. We need to live each day in light of eternity. We need to live in preparation. We need to be ready at a moment's notice because uh, we have no guarantee how long we have on this, this earth or in this life. Father, we pray for us tonight as we continue our study in Peter, being reminded that we are to live each day in light of eternity, living in light of the hope that we have, that confident expectation of a future uh, reward and a future destiny in, uh, in the kingdom and in eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Tonight, as we get into the 21st verse, uh, we'll look at this idea of faithful and faith that are uh, brought up in this passage. We need to do some correction in the translation, but before we get to verse 21, we need to complete verse 20, and I want to remind you a little bit about the context, not as much as we covered last week, but this passage... These verses from verse 13 down through verse 25 relate to four basic imperatival verbs. One of the things I try to emphasize with pastors is let the text determine what the focus is. And your your thoughts are always conveyed through sentences. Sentences may be one verse, they may be multiple verses, they may be compound or complex or compound and complex sentences. And uh, we have to look for those independent clauses in the main verbs. And often when we look at an English translation, we, are, <clears throat> we can be distracted because uh, each translation has its own idiosyncrasies. The King James Version as well as the New King James Version have a tendency, or the translators had the uh, tendency to try to make each verse uh, stand alone as an independent clause or as a sentence, hopefully as, as a sentence. So they often broke long sentences uh, in the original Greek up into, uh, into two or three different sentences, sometimes more. Uh, but it's important because we lose the thrust and the thought of the original if we're not dealing with it in terms of the thought that is communicated in the original. 
And what we have in the overall structure of First Peter chapter 1 is uh, <clears throat> an opening introduction. You have your salutation in the first two verses. Then you have an introduction which focuses on the main themes of the epistle, which is encouraging a group of Jewish background believers to um, hang tough, to persevere, to stick with their spiritual growth in the midst of difficulties. And their difficulties are described as various trials in the introduction, uh, being tested by fire. Later in chapter 5, they're described as fiery trials. And the pattern, the model for handling suffering is the pattern of Christ's uh, undeserved suffering uh, on the cross, that he was suffered first and then glorified. But the challenge is to these uh, Jewish believers to not give up the faith, to be to remind them almost in, in, in very ways that are very similar to the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, to remind them that that where they are and their uh, trust in uh, Jesus as the Messiah is uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises in Jesus and to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of opposition they might meet. And I've mentioned in the past that a lot of this opposition and persecution they met could have come from within the Jewish community itself as they, <clears throat> as it was becoming divided. It's not like it would be a uh, hundred years later, but it was becoming divided over this issue of the identification or the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And so verse 11 talks about uh, Christ and how the Old Testament prophets were struggling to understand what the, their prophecies were related to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is the pattern, and glory is a key word that we'll see in the section that we're uh, looking to. So those main ideas are brought up in the verse 12 verses, and then starting in verse 13, there are four basic ideas which I've put up on the on the screen, and these four ideas all relate to these four imperatives. And we've studied the first three, uh, and the first command is in verse uh, 13, rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you, uh, and, and it uses the word sober, and the idea in, in sobriety wasn't so much um, the idea of not being influenced by alcoholic beverages, but it became basically an idiom for having clear objective thinking, not having it clouded by some sort of external influence. And in biblical Christianity, that external influence is what? What's the main external influence? It's the world system. We're not to be uh, conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our uh, of, of our mind. So the uh, the way it's translated in English, it looks as if the, the command is to gird up the loins of your mind. And without getting in a lot of technicalities, that's a participle. And although there have been people who've tried to make these imperatival participles, a lot of studies that have been done recently, uh, even though Peter uses imperatival uh, participles, this is not imperatival. It should be translated, the command is rest your hope. How do you do that? By girding up the loins of your mind, that is, by being prepared mentally, being uh, having objective thinking. 
and that's in the genitive, so that would be the idea of through objective thinking. The second command is to set yourselves apart. That's the idea of being holy, setting yourself apart to the service of God. So you have this idea in the first that, that you rest your hope fully on the grace of God by always being prepared, ready to engage in the battle at a moment's notice, always being prepared, and that means always being being sanctified, always being set apart to the service of God, always being ready. Uh, we would apply that in ways by uh, consistently keeping short accounts in terms of confession of sin, but also very practically in terms of how we think and how we live, not giving an inch to the world to take over our thought patterns. And that's where Peter goes in verses 17 to 21 to conduct their lives in Fear of God, and that idea is a fearful respect, recognizing that there's accountability eventually at the judgment seat of Christ. And then where we're headed with this, and, and that covers verses 17 down to, to 21, which we may finish tonight. And then in verse 22, introduces that last imperative, which is to love one another with integrity. So everything revolves around these four imperatives. And the verses there give you the the sentences that that uh, contain each of those each of those imperatives. First Peter one uh, seventeen. I've um, structured this as conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, moving that up front because that's the imperative. In English, if we put it in the word order of the Greek, we lose the thrust of that imperative. So just restructuring that, the command is to live your life a certain way uh, based on that fearful respect of God, knowing that accountability is coming. And that's what's indicated in the second, in the conditional clause, if or since you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. The reason we conduct our life in fear is because we know that there's going to be accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. So when we break these commands down, we see that they relate to the spiritual skills, the problem-solving devices, those, those basic spiritual skills that, that, that we use that, that almost everything in Scripture can be um, categorized under. We're to live on the basis of hope. That's verse 13, rest your hope fully. That's personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're to live set apart unto God. That involves confession of sin, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. We're to live our life based on the fear of God. That's doctrinal orientation and personal love for God the Father. Uh, because we know what it costs to redeem us. That's understanding. That's doctrinal orientation. And the doctrine is redemption, understanding that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are not our own. We are God's, and then that leads to the fourth imperative, which is to love one another, which is impersonal love for God. I mean, excuse me, impersonal love for all mankind. Not that it's some sort of mechanical thing, but it, we don't have to have a personal relationship with people in order to love them the way the Bible says to love them. Now, last time we got down to verse 20, and so I've I've expanded and and sort of retranslated it to get the thrust of what is going on here. Uh, it's a little awkward in other tra uh, some translations. <clears throat> it begins with a construction in Greek that says, indeed this, and it could be indeed this, but this, which is how some translations uh, carry it out. But uh, I've, I've emphasized it's, it's 
more of a continuity. Indeed, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world and was manifest in these last times because of you all, who the bad place to break it because the sentence continues, because of you all who, through him, believe in God, that is God the Father, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, notice that verse references God the Father twice. It's real easy to jump into that verse and read it the first time and think that this is talking about phase one salvation or getting into heaven when we die. But that's not what we don't. Belief in God is not the gospel. Belief in Christ Jesus, who died for our sins, that's the gospel. But here it's believe in God. But the word that's translated believe, and in a lot of versions is translated believe, is not the same word that we have for faith later on, which is the key word usually for justification or phase one. It's different. So we have to look at that translation a a little better. Now, last time, I focused on the first key word that is a complicated, highly debated term, that is at one of the words at the core difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, although I believe there is a middle way, as many people do, that is neither one. Both of those represent extreme positions, and <clears throat> uh, it is one of the key words. Election is another word, uh, God's choice. Uh, predestination is another word, and here we have the word translated for ordained, but it is the Greek word we studied, began to study last time, the verb prognosko, which literally means to know something beforehand. It means prescience. And you'll find a lot of people who are more Calvinistic who think that prescience means Man is the ultimate cause of his salvation because that's how it's misused on the Arminian side. But it, if you understand the, the knowledge of God correctly, it doesn't mean that man is the ultimate determiner. Uh, both God's sovereignty is decreed that it works in conjunction with human responsibility and human decisions. This word, prognosco, means to know something ahead of time. It's only used uh, five times in the New Testament, uh, not including the passage uh, that we're talking about. So in total of six times, and the noun is used two times. And last time I went through the lexical data, I went through a lot of other information, And just to summarize that up, I have a quote from the New International uh, Dictionary of New Testament Theology that states the corresponding noun prognosis is attested as a medical term since Hippocrates denotes the foreknowledge or prescience, which makes it possible to predict the future. In other words, knowledge, uh, certain knowledge of future events. And last time I began to look at the different uh, verses where this is used. We looked at Acts 2.23. I worked through basic information here. But the important thing about Acts 2.23 is to understand that the speaker is the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And how is he using the word? And how does he use the word when we're in First Peter chapter 1? 
because it's the same speaker, the same author. And we'll find that there's a, a tremendous uh, similarity and that his, his idea is that uh, it, this is very, come on, there we go, very delicate tonight. Okay, in him being delivered by the determined purpose, that's the will of God, the word boule, indicates his will, his purpose, his intent, and the foreknowledge of God. Now, the way some Calvinists translate prognosco, it has the idea of an intimate loving relationship. God chose whom he would love in eternity past. And they import into the, the idea of this word the, the concepts of choice and a loving intimate relationship. But this doesn't make sense within this context. And as I said, there's, there's uh, six uses of this outside of our passage, six uses of this, this word in, this, in the New Testament. And we have to be careful not to read into the text an external idea. This is a major problem in a lot of word studies, is to read something in that might work. You can read a word, you can say, well, I think it has this idea to it. And that idea seems to work, at least it makes sense within the sentence. But that doesn't mean that that meaning that you've come up with is definitely within the semantic domain of that particular word. In other words, it's not necessarily one of its meanings. And when you look at how this word is used in all of the non-biblical literature, as well as at least two passages uh, within the New Testament, it always has that idea of a prescience, of knowing something beforehand. And so when you look at the three passages where it could possibly mean something else, you have to have data to support that. You can't just say, well, it makes more sense or it makes sense to me. That's not a legitimate way to come to that kind of a conclusion. So... Um, Dr. Thomas Edgar, who taught Greek for many years at Capital Bible Seminary, uh, wrote an uh, excellent article on this for the Chafer Theological Journal some years ago. And he makes a point here that if you just do a simple word substitution of either choice or intimate loving relationship, which is how Calvinists want to nuance prognosco, if you just do a simple word substitution, uh, it doesn't make sense at all. He says the meaning intimate loving relationship is very unlikely as a definition for foreknowledge in this passage. So if you're going to say this is a, a, a meaning for the word, it's got to be able to fit passages. So if you translated it, being delivered by the determined purpose and intimate loving relationship of God, <clears throat> that was not applied to the act of bringing the second person of the Trinity to the cross. That's what he is saying. He says, nor does the meaning election uh, by the determined pur- that Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and um, election or choice of God. That doesn't make sense. And neither one, even if that did fit, it doesn't talk about soteriology. It's talking, it would be God's choice of Jesus for the role of redemptor. It doesn't fit. So it doesn't get the Calvinist where he hopes it will take him. He says, uh, concludes, the other alleged possibility creates a tautology. In other words, 
If it means, if foreknowledge means a determination or a determined plan of God, then you can't say by the determined purpose and determined plan of God. It's just redundant and meaningless. Very good observation there. We looked also at 1 Peter 1.2 that says that we're, that we're choice according to, on the basis of the standard of the foreknowledge, God's prescience. So his prescience precedes um, any other actions, and that's related to his, his omniscience. Now, the next verse to look at where we stopped last time is Romans 8, 28, and 29. This is a very important verse. It's important for what we studied on Tuesday night, which has to do with the problem of understanding the problem of evil, and that is that God is sovereign and omnipotent in his governing of his universe so that he controls evil in such a way that he is able to bring about an ultimate good that is greater than all of the evil that occurs in human history. And this is a confident statement at the beginning. We know that all things work together for good. God is the one who works them together for good. For those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul explains what it means to be called according to God's purpose. And he gives a progression of words. First of all, for whom he foreknew. Now, it's important to point out it doesn't say for what he foreknew, which is neuter or impersonal, but for whom he foreknew. It has to do with knowing something about people. I'll bring that point out a little more in a couple of other passages. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So foreknowledge precedes uh, precedes predestination. Pre, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his God, uh, of his Son. Now, being predestined according to, to be conformed to the image of his Son doesn't mean predestined to salvation. It doesn't say predestined to eternity in heaven. It is Predestination has to do with determining a destiny beforehand. And the destiny for every believer, everyone who is justified and glorified, is that we are ultimately to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's not talking about the selection process of who will be saved and who will not be saved. So foreknowledge has this idea the, uh, related to the omniscience of God and knowing uh, what will transpire uh, because God is all-knowing. He knows everything, the possible as well as the actual. The point that I make at the bottom of the slide, if foreknowledge means the same as choosing to have a relationship beforehand, that's the idea that you have from Calvinists. They, remember I pointed out last time, they'll go back to the Old Testament they look at the word yada, which is used some 450 times, I think. They'll look at that word, which is a Hebrew word to know, and they'll hone in on the fact that in about 100 or about 25% of the uses, it may have the idea of, have, of knowing someone intimately or having a more intimate relationship. Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth to a son. Now, that's not academic knowledge. That's not... Uh, simple recognition. Adam wasn't looking across the garden a hundred yards away and go, that's Eve coming. It's more intimate than that. 
but that is a secondary or tertiary meaning to the word yada, as I pointed out last time. And it is not uh, appropriate methodology. In fact, it's a semantic fallacy to extrapolate that to the word pragnosko with that prefix pra, which indicates something ahead of time. So if, according to the Calvinist, Knowledge or foreknowledge has to do with having a relationship or selecting a relationship ahead of time, uh, then this would mean for whom he foreknew or whom he chose, he also predestined. They interpret that in terms of election. Again, you have a redundancy. This is setting a progression. First, there's knowledge beforehand. Then there is the decision to to destine, to, to, to uh, target conformity to the person of Christ for those who are justified. Edgar comments this way. He says, uh, <clears throat> we, we know that this because all those God foreknew, he also destined to glory just like he did his son. In order to accomplish his purpose, he calls these same individuals he justifies them, and finally glorifies them. This seems clear enough. The passage states each step as distinct and chronologically and or logically successive, moving from the beginning foreknowledge to the goal glorification. Foreknowledge is foundational. It is prior to all other elements. So you can't interpret foreknowledge in a way that makes it roughly a synonym for predestination. The passage says that God is uh, focusing on certain persons. He's talking about knowing something about certain persons, and we'll look at that as we go along. So Romans 8, 28, or 29 says, For whom he foreknow, he also predestined. He's talking about about people. He's talking about those in the church age who trust in Jesus Christ. So the passage clearly makes a distinction between foreknowledge and predestination. Edgar then says, but it is clear from the connection of 828 and 829 um, that because, uh, let me see here, it's clear from the connection of 828 and 829 because that 829 sets forth the purpose of God for those described, i.e. those who God foreknows. Thus, if prognosco means choose, of necessity it means choose for this purpose. So God would be that, God would, by that very choice, be predestining them to glory, uh, which is predestination. However, in the passage, predestination is carefully separated from foreknowledge and is based on foreknowledge. We run into something similar in Romans 11.2. Paul begins chapter 11 of Romans by saying, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Obviously, those whom he foreknew ahead of time. And he's talking about the nation corporately here. And that's clear from how God uses the term uh, Israel throughout 
Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's not viewing them individually. He's viewing them as a corporate entity, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that means is that this isn't talking about their individual salvation status. It's not talking about uh, choosing some for salvation and others not. It's talking about God's corporate selection of the uh, of the of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for His plan for mankind, and that that is based upon His omniscience and His prescience, His knowledge ahead of time, His knowledge uh, beforehand. Uh, one writer, I mentioned him last time, Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on Romans. Uh, he's a major commentator out there who is uh, really more of a hyper-Calvinist. He's, 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 he's almost a hyper-lordship guy. He, he says that real faith has works, and therefore he, is, he gets to the point where he basically says, if you're, if you're saved by faith plus the right kind of works, he will, go, he will press it to that extent. And he says that in, in uh, uh, Romans 11.4, when it talks about the remnant, uh, that this is deterministic election to their salvation. That's just an example of reading it into your theology, into the text. But the, one of the most clear passages is in Acts 26.5. Now, Acts 26.5 is pretty simple. You've got a situation where the Apostle Paul has been in, uh, basically, he's, he's been under sort of a house arrest type situation in Caesarea by the sea. He has given his testimony to the procurators, to uh, Felix and Festus, and now he's being interviewed by uh, Herod Agrippa II. And he is going to describe to Herod Agrippa his his background and why he's gotten he's become arrested. And so in the course of this he gives his testimony to Agrippa and he reminds Agrippa that uh, about these issues that as he states Agrippa is familiar with. He states that at the very beginning in the first first couple of verses that there, he's not giving him any new information but this is exactly uh, what uh, what Agrippa is familiar with already. And he reminds Agrippa, secondly, in the, in the context, that Paul received his training in Jerusalem, that he was, and this is something that all of the Jewish leaders uh, were familiar with, and that they knew who Paul was. They had known him most of his life. We know that Paul moved to Jerusalem when he was bar mitzvah at the age of 13, and from that point on, he was probably the star pupil of Gamaliel II in Jerusalem. And so he reminds Agrippa of this background. And the third thing we know from the context is that he says that they, and this is the immediate verse itself, which reads, they knew me, which means they knew me ahead of time. They knew me from the beginning. So it's very obvious he's talking about knowledge beforehand. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So what uh, my third point is that the Jew, he's saying that the Jewish leaders knew me before these other events, that is his conversion and his missionary journeys. He said they knew me long before any of this. 
They knew me back when I was a hardcore Pharisee. So it's it's very clear. This is one of those passages that makes it clear that, that prognosco means to know things ahead of time. Now, the other thing that we see here grammatically is that the verb is prognosco to know, but the verb takes a direct object. They knew something. They knew me. They knew Paul. So the object of prognosco is personal, they, but it, even though it doesn't use, the, it doesn't need the word about, that's the sense of the sentence. They knew about me. They knew things about me. They, they knew uh, facts about him. That's the context. That's what we've been describing. So the object of the verb knew is, is me, thus indicating they knew something about the Apostle Paul. By implication, when God foreknows us, he knows something ahead of time about us. He knows specific information about us. He knows everything that there is to know about us. Thus, we can conclude that prognosco refers to knowledge about someone or something it is not a not referring to a predetermined relationship, a loving relationship, a choice, or a predetermined plan. It is knowing something about someone. That fits all the extra-biblical meanings, and it fits all but maybe three meanings in the New Testament. Those are the ones that the Calvinists say have this elective choice idea. But you can't just dream it up and ram, cram, and jam it into the text. You have to go with the internal evidence. So the conclusion is that foreknowledge means to know something ahead of time that we're aware of, we have information beforehand, and so this is a subcategory of God's omniscience. God knows all the knowable in his omniscience. He knows everything that could happen, that might happen under any and every uh, uh, situation and every alternative. And as a result, he then makes a determined plan as to what will take place. His knowledge of all possibilities precedes the determination of his plan. So then, when we look at the verse itself, should be translated not foreordained as we have in the New King James, but something along the lines of the, uh, 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 of, of the NASB or the NET. Notice I put the NIV up here, which translates it, he was chosen before the creation of the world. That's why I say that the NIV is the New International Commentary. It's not a translation. It's not a, in any form of the word eclectoi, which is the noun for election, or, or it's verbal cognate. It doesn't say he was chosen. It says he was foreknown, prognosco. Yet they read their theology into the text and translate it more like a paraphrase than a translation. So the NIV may have a decent study Bible, but that's not the text. And you buy a study Bible for the translation of the text, not for the notes. One commentator makes this point in talking about this verse. He says, Here neither Christ's faith nor any other action or attribute of his is the object of foreknowledge. 
Rather, it's Christ himself foreknown. Now, he's not making the point here. It sounds like he's making a point that it's a, it knows something about, God knew something about him. But in a previous sentence, the writer states that foreknowledge means a loving, committed relationship. So if we were to translate it that way in verse uh, 20, it would read, He indeed was the object of a loving, committed relationship before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. Now, the Greek word that's translated but can also be translated and, but it has a very... I, I, I chose to translate it as and, it has a soft, contrastive sense to it, which is why it's translated translated but. And we see that there's this contrast. He's foreordained before the foundation of the world, and that is being compared or contrasted to the fact that he's manifest in these, in these last times. So translating it with the sense of foreknowledge, uh, with the sense of a loving, committed relationship or a choice doesn't fit the contrast between being manifest in these last days and what it was in eternity past. It violates the sense of the whole sentence structure. So this is my point here in this particular slide. In verse 20, we see... Uh, it indeed having been foreordained, it's a perfect participle there indicating completed action in the past, having been foreordained or foreknown uh, before the foundation of the world, but was manifested or in these last times for you. So we see that there's this soft contrast between known beforehand with now with known i mean excuse me with manifest known beforehand with is contrasted with manifest and before the foundation is contrasted within the last times so we have to maintain this any sense in which you're translating this as an election type of word violates the the structure the the soft contrasts that are being set up in the verse itself that's why we have to go back to Acts 2.23, which we studied earlier, to show that this is the idea that, that uh, we see here. You have Christ is being delivered by the will and the prior knowledge of God, taking into account all the details, choosing the right time, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, that he chose the right time, the fullness of times, when, when Christ appeared. Now let's move on and look at this little sense of contrast that we have within, uh, within uh, one more thing as we look at this idea of fore, foreknowledge. I've gone through the studies. I've talked about the, the word studies, the lexicons. I've talked about the meaning in the context. And I wanted to give you a couple of quotes from some other commentaries that uh, support what I've said. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a volume out called The Messianic Epistles, Commentary on 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Hebrews, and James. And he says regarding the use of the word foreknown, he says, Peter again uses the word foreknown. In, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, the believer was foreknown, and this foreknowledge included the redemptive foreknowledge of God. 
Now, Peter points out that the Redeemer himself was included in that redemptive foreknowledge. So it's not just who's going to be redeemed or who will believe, but it's also knowledge that of how it's going to be brought about. He then says the word foreknown means to know ahead of time because of pre-planning. See, he doesn't take this elective idea that is typical of, of uh, strong Calvinists. He says, before the foundation of the world, God foreknew and planned the whole redemptive program. That's the idea right there. Uh, Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 Peter and the Baker exegetical commentary in the New Testament, says, Thus God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. The revelation of this program is for the benefit of those who, through the hearing of the gospel, would put their faith in God and enter into the living hope and their new birth based on the resurrection of Christ. So there are two commentaries supporting the idea that this is talking about prescience. It's not talking about uh, elective choice. Now, when we look at the, the structure of verse 20, that indeed Christ, it's a continuation of verse 19, that he has been foreknown before the foundation of the world. And there's a contrast of what happens before the foundation of the world and the foreknowledge before the foundation of the world and the present time, which is that he is made manifest. And this is an interesting word that shows up here. This is the Greek word phanerao, and phanerao has the idea of, it's a synonym for apocalypto, which means to reveal something, to disclose something, and it's a synonym, and it's sometimes they're used interchangeably, and a lot of times they're not. In fact, Peter uses apocalypto in several places in 1 Peter, used it in 1.5, 1.7, 1.13, 4.13 and in 5.1 in reference to the second coming. Now, in 5, I think it's in 5.3 or 4, he uses Fonerao um, uh, for the second coming. But he tends to make this distinction that he was manifest at the first coming. We saw him. He manifested himself to us. We saw him. In John's words, we, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. First uh, John uh, one one through four, but he will be revealed. The apocalypto is generally used for what will take place at the future second coming. The word phanerao is used several times by John in the Gospel of John in order to refer to the first advent. In John one thirty one. Uh, John the Baptist says, related to Jesus, the Messiah, he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed, that is, Phanerao, manifest to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. In John 2.11, at the conclusion of the first miracle, uh, changing the water into wine at the um, wedding at Cana in Galilee, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In John 3.21, John says, But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that is, that his deeds may be uh, manifest, that they have been done in God. And then in John 17.6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. So these words describe Jesus' uh, uh, 
first advent, his coming. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11, Paul uses the word, interestingly enough, uh, he recognized in the first coming Jesus manifested himself to us, that when we saw him, we saw the Father. He's the only one who has seen the Father, the only one who exegeted him. That's John's terminology. But Paul goes on to say that after the ascension, then the way Jesus is manifested to the world is when the world looks at the church. And that's pretty sad because we don't do a good job of manifesting Christ to the world, especially you remember a few weeks ago I talked about these incessant physical battles that take place in places like the uh, uh, Church of the Nativity, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Israel, where the Assyrian Christians and the Roman Catholics and the uh, Greek Orthodox uh, fight each other all the time, get, uh, get in literal battles so that the I- IDF has to be sent in to break up the Christians so they don't kill themselves. That is a tragedy. That is not manifesting the body of Christ. Uh, but that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.10. He says, always caring about in the body in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We are to reflect Christ to the world. And then Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 5.4 to refer to the second coming when he says that the chief she- when the chief shepherd appears... That is the manifestation of Jesus at the second coming. You will receive the or excuse me. Uh, this is going to be at the rapture. When the chief shepherd appears, that's going to be at the rapture. You will receive the crown of glory that's at the judgment seat of Christ that does not fade away. Now, when we look at this verse, I want you to notice it's, that it says that Jesus was manifested in these last times for you. When are the last times? You talk to 99.9999% of Christians, even those who think they're biblically literate, and you'll hear them make comments, boy, when you look at what's going on in Israel, when you look at what's going on in the Middle East, when you look at what's going on with the economy, when you look at what's going on in the election, we must be in the last times. Well, that would be a real surprise to Peter and to the writer of Hebrews and to Paul because they thought they were in the last times. They said the last times begin right after the ascension of Christ. We've been in the last times for almost 2,000 years. You look at these things. We say we're in, we are in the last days, and we've been in the last days since the ascension of Christ. Remember, there are two last days in the Bible. There's the last days of the church age, which is basically the whole church age, because we don't know when it will end. And so these things that are stated are continuous trends. And they're the last days of Israel, which relates to what's going to happen in the seven years of the tribulation period. Some of these verses... In 2 Timothy 3.1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now, it looks like he's talking about something in the future. But when you read the whole context in the next 11 verses, he's talking about what's going on at that particular time with the false teachers that are coming in and disrupting the church at that time in the first century. 
Hebrews 1, 2, the writer of Hebrews, before the end of the apostolic period, says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So he understood by the inspiration of Scripture that he was living in the last days. In 1 John 2, 18, uh, John says, little children, it is the last hour. It's been a long hour. It's like that atomic clock that has been one minute to midnight for decades. Okay? It's, we've been in the last hour for almost 2,000 years. It is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The, Satan has no more idea of when the rapture is going to occur than anybody in this room or anybody in the world. And so in every decade, every generation, he has to have somebody he's prepared that he can move into the slot as soon as the rapture occurs. So in every decade and every generation, you can look out there and you can see somebody who fits the profile. We had Bill Clinton in the 90s, and we had Obama now. We've got... Who knows who else? There was Bismarck. Before Bismarck, there was Napoleon. Then there was Hitler. Then there's Ayatollah and Saddam. It goes on and on. Okay? There's always somebody who possibly could fit the mold. It couldn't have been Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton was a believer. Um, he may not live like it, but based on the testimony of his, of his pastor back in the 80s, he clearly understood the gospel and trusted Christ as his Savior. So... The last hour is the church age. Now, as we go on in the text, the way it's broken up at the end of verse 20 is really unfortunate because 21 continues the thought, and there's no break. There's not a comma break. There's not a semicolon break. It just continues. This is why I put it on the slide beginning with the last uh, phrase of uh, verse 20, that uh, Christ was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God. Now we have to look at that whole phrase. For you means because of you or on account of you. The Greek uses the preposition dia, but prepositions can govern different cases. So if you have dia with the accusative, it means one thing. If you have dia with the genitive, it means something else. It's going to be used with the genitive and with the accusative in this verse, and they have different senses. And some some prepositions can come with one of three cases, and you have to discern which case it is and make that decision. That's fairly objective. So dia with the accusative has this idea of causality. Now, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through is dia, but faith is not in the accusative. It's not because of faith. It's through faith. It's instrumentality. This is causation here, dia plus the accusative. Uh, on account of you, because of you, and then there is a relative a relative clause there. It's you who threw him. And here we have dia plus a, a, a genitive. And that indicates instrumentality or means. It is through him, through Christ. And then it says, 
We believe in God. Now, it's real easy where somebody could look at this and say, okay, this is, this is uh, because Christ was manifested, and through him we believe in God, so this is how we get to heaven. This is, has something to do with justification. And you would be wrong. And the reason is, is it's it, it, translating the, the Greek word here as believe leads us astray. There are two Greek words that are very similar but must be distinguished. There are times when they overlap. So you have to be careful. This is where exegesis involves not only science but also art. You have to understand and compare passages and have a good doctrinal framework. Who through him believe in God is the top word here, pissed us, with an O-S ending, an Omicron Sigma ending. And it doesn't have, see, when you translate this, who through him believe, in English, that is translated as if it's a verb. But it's not a verb. It is a noun. A noun, though, that has, as the dictionary points out, sort of a verbal, there are verbal nouns. We understand that. It has kind of a verbal sense. But it has more the idea of pistos with the Omicron Sigma has the idea of faithfulness. John MacArthur, in the first edition of his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, which is when he really started to uh, explain his lordship views, translated Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which uses the word pistis, you're saved through faith. He translated pistis as if it were pistos and translated it, for by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. That's his idea of perseverance. He corrected that. In fact, he took the whole comment out in his second edition. But there were several people who wrote book reviews, myself included, who pointed out the error, the, the error there in the misuse of the Greek. So here we're talking about who through Christ are faithful in God, in, toward God. Now, that's important because what is Peter talking about? Peter's talking to these Hebrew Christians that just as Christ was faithful in obedience to God in the midst of his fiery trials and was glorified, so too if we are faithful in obeying God when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, we will glorify God and we'll receive rewards. That's the thrust of what he's saying in the whole epistle. If you have that, you have what he's talking about. So when he comes to passages like this, it doesn't fit that what he's talking about is how to get into heaven when you die or how to be justified. What he's talking about is the fact that that they are faithful to this point. They have been faithful toward God so that they will... Uh, so that their faith, pistis, here there's a different word, so that your faith, that is your trust, that's related to faith rest drill, so that your faith and your hope, your confident expectation are in God. So we read this, who through him, through Christ, are faithful toward God, that's this phrase here, ace, theon, preposition plus the a noun object of the preposition, which indicates direction. They're faithful toward God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So Christ is glorified because he's, he was faithful to the end, fulfilled his mission. The result, so that your faith, that is your faith rest drill, not they're, they're already 
uh, justified, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The use of the word glory here reminds us that suffering in the present time is nothing compared to the glory to come. That was part of Paul's argument in, in Romans 8. Here in the introduction, Paul, Peter brings in these ideas. In 1 Peter 1, 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith is tested by fire, may be found to the glory to glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Phase two faithfulness resulting in glorification of God at the judgment seat of Christ. First Peter one eight, he says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing by believing uh, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So when we look at faith and hope at the end of the verse, faith refers to the faith rest drill. The act of trusting God or mixing faith with the promises of God. That summarizes the, the, basically the spiritual childhood stage of spiritual growth. Those basic uh, uh, problem-solving devices, those basic spiritual skills, confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation. That's your foundation. Then hope represents the adolescent stage, the sixth spiritual skill, personal sense of our eternal destiny. Now, next time, we're going to get into something that really gets fun. In verses 22 and 23, Paul says, I mean, Peter says, uh, sense or because you've purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit. Is that positional or experiential? How are we going to understand this purification? A lot of interesting things in relation to that word. And, but the command is to love one another fervently, with a pure heart. Very important to understand that. It's based upon the fact that we have already been born again, so verse 22 doesn't have anything to do with getting justified. And it is based on the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then we get this wonderful quotation that comes out of uh, Isaiah 40 verse 6 that I quote all the time that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever so we're going to have to go back and understand the context of Isaiah 40 the beginning of Isaiah 40 tells us that the word of God endures forever what does the end of Isaiah 40 say Isaiah 40 31 they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Those are connected together in Isaiah 40. So we'll go back and we'll look at Isaiah 40 to catch what, why Peter is quoting this at that time. Great stuff. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be encouraged, strengthened, recognizing that no matter what the trial, the test, the difficulty, the challenge may be today, we know you are faithful to us and that if we live today in light of eternity, we're trusting in you that no matter what we may be going through, that we can rest in your provision and in your strength. And ultimately, we are driving towards the judgment seat of Christ and glorifying you. And Father, we just pray that you will strengthen us in our obedience and our focus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.